All right, if you have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Judges, chapter 1. Last week we began our study in this book, and we did kind of an introduction. It's not maybe the, a typical introduction, but we, we covered a couple of things. One was we wanted to understand where this period of time was in the Old Testament outline. Uh, the timeline of the things that occur in the Old Testament. Where is the period of the judges? And so uh, we saw that it is after the Israelites had entered the land of Canaan, uh, those historical events, the, the conquering of the land that is we see in the book of Joshua. Uh, after that conquest is the period of the judges, and it's more than 300 years. It's quite a while. And it follows a, a period of time right before Israel has its first king. And so this is the period of the judges. And we talked about uh, God's commission to the Jewish people. What it was he told them to do, his mandate. Uh, his mandate was for them to enter the land and for all of the people that were living there to make them leave, to remove them. One way or another, they were to be removed. And God did that because it was part of his plan. Um, God has a, a master plan. You can call it plan A. It's God's perfect will. It's what it is that he wants to accomplish. It's a plan. And in this plan, the idea was for Israel to enter this land that God had given them. You know, America did not belong to the American Indians any more than it belongs to the Europeans or now us. The land belongs to God. God decided he was going to give that land to the Jewish people. Now, there were people already living there, but the way they were living, the things they were doing, God had had enough, and he was bringing judgment on them, just like he does on other people right now. And so God wanted those people removed. That was part of his plan. And so the Jewish people were supposed to enter the land and remove them. Another aspect was that they were to be removed because if they stayed there, God knew that would be bad. That would be a bad influence upon the Jewish people. They needed to leave. And if they didn't leave... They couldn't finish the plan because God's master plan includes the nation of Israel being a light to the nations. God wants to bless the entire world through that nation. That's the vehicle. And so uh, if the Jewish people are in fellowship with God, they become his instrument in the things that he wants to accomplish. But God is very smart. And he has a plan B. And the plan B is there because he knows what he's dealing with. And he knew that ultimately he was going to have to redeem those people that he had chosen. And he knew that their daily life, they were going to be dealing with sin and struggling with sin. And so one of the provisions that he made for them was to have the Canaanites removed from the land, to give them a clean shot at it, you know, so that you can even have a, have a chance at living for God. 
There's some things that you've got to do. And this obviously applies to the church. You know, uh, uh, God has given us a great commission. We're supposed to be a light to the nations, a light to the world. And God wants us to be set apart and pure and clean so that we become clean, good vessels for Him to use for His things He wants to do. The good news is that God is sovereign and He's in charge and so He's going to accomplish everything that He's set out to do. There's nothing that's taking Him by surprise. And so what He has done is He's taken plan A and plan B and He's merged them together. So much so that you can't really tell the difference. But it's really important for us as believers to understand that God has something He prefers to see happen. But He's not... Uh, naive and he knows that we are sinners and that we fail him and so he has built in the provisions for us for the church example we have each other we have the bible and we have the indwelling holy spirit things that god has provided for us to give us some success in our daily walk but the application is crystal clear because what the jewish people did not do is they did not address the canaanite issue properly and it caused, it caused a massive problem. So there's plan A and plan B. And God has merged them together. And so as we come to the book of Judges, uh, we came to the very first verse last Sunday. Uh, is that the verse? Do I have the verse up there? Okay, that's, that's the very first verse of the book. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who will be the first to fight for us against the Canaanites? And so this period of time begins with the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the most important word there is after. It's what happens after a leader passes away or leaves. It creates a, a vacuum. In this situation, it created a, a political crisis. Who's going to be in charge? And so in that question, the question isn't really so much who's going to be our new leader, as it is, how do we know who goes first? How do we know what we conquer first? Which tribe goes first? What are we supposed to do? And so there was a vacuum there about leadership, but there was also a question of how do we take our first step? You know, if, uh, if, if in a church, if the pastor dies, or the pastor leaves, or the pastor does something to become disqualified. Then all of a sudden you have a church without a pastor. What should a church do in such a time? In such a circumstance, it takes a spotlight and it shines it right down on your head. Because all of a sudden, it really doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. All of a sudden you get to see for yourself who you are how you see yourself in the church, your role. Will you abandon ship? Are your roots shallow? Or will you rise to the occasion? Hopefully a church will pull together and draw strength from each other and seek God. When Joshua died, before he died, he gave a, a final statement to the nation. And when he did that, he did not name his successor. 
He didn't do that. If you were to, you know, you just have to think about what happened to the Jewish people. You know, Moses, Moses was their leader. He was a, a great leader. What an incredible man. The, and the things that God did in Moses' life. You know, you look at Billy Graham. You're just like, wow. God used that guy. Well, Moses was an incredible leader and he passed away. And God filled that vacuum with Joshua and Joshua was fantastic. What a great leader. What a great, strong, solid man of God. Joshua. But if you were to ask Moses, who's the leader? Who leads this nation? Moses would say, the leader is God. And if you were to ask Joshua, who's the leader, Joshua? Joshua would say, the leader is God. And so in times of peril, in times of vacuums, in times of leadership absence, whenever these things happen, we have to be reminded that God is our leader and we have to come to Him. And so in this very first verse, this is exactly what we see them doing. They're inquiring of the Lord. And that is spot on. That is exactly what they needed to be doing. So at this very early point, we have this good news. That they at least knew that they need to seek God for direction in fulfilling what it was He wanted them to do. Who's going to be the first to go with us to fight against the Canaanites? So they had not abandoned the plan. They were listening to God and they were asking God what to do first. So those are all very fan, uh, fantastic things as we see happening. But the mere fact that this verse says against the Canaanites tells us, as we discussed last week, that there is much work to be done. You know, the, the book of Joshua, the way it ends, it gives us the impression that after this massive military campaign, there was a period of downtime, uh, of, of, of rest. Um, after, after they had conquered all of these city-states, and after they had divided up all of the land, there was a little bit of a downtime, a time to regroup before they went out to finish the job. Finishing the job meant, let's go ahead and completely purify the land. All of the Canaanites have to be removed. So massive wars, massive city-states falling. Israel had basically conquered the land as far as taking out their big strongholds. And they had allotted the land to all of the tribes. And now there's a period of rest. And this period of rest uh, is occurring at the end of Joshua and it is ending at the beginning of Judges. The book of Judges begins in the, in the opening words of this book with the battles that were to follow as they began to purify the land. This is the beginning of the book of Judges. So as we think about the letter, uh, the letter, the book of Joshua, we will remember that the very first 12 chapters is this military campaign where they're taking out all of these fortified cities like Ai and Jericho. And then chapters 13 through 22 is describing how they divided up the land among the tribes. That's the book of Joshua. And then the book of Joshua ends chapters 23 and chapters 24 with Joshua's final statement to the nation of Israel. 
before he dies. And so uh, we're in Judges chapter 1, so uh, if you would, let's turn back a few pages to chapter 23 in Joshua, just backwards a little bit to Joshua 23. Joshua 23 and 24 is this final statement that Joshua gives the nation. And to fully appreciate his words, we need to read all of them. But uh, today we're just going to read a few verses because our purpose is seeing that while Israel was in this time of rest, the world, the flesh, and the devil was hard at work. Beginning with verse 1 of chapter 23. A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, a long time. Joshua was old, getting on in years. So Joshua summoned all Israel. Then drop down to verse 6. Be very strong and continue, and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you do not turn from it, the law, to the right or the left, and so that you do not associate, see that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not worship them or bow down to them. So obviously, these Canaanites were still in the land and they were still worshiping idols. Because if you don't, verse 12, for if you turn away, if you turn away from the right or the left from the law, if you turn away and you cling to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a scourge for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given you. Judges chapter 1. You know, it only seems reasonable that after this military pain, uh, campaign that there would be a time of rest, a, a time to heal. You know, every time I try to fix something at the house, I've got 16 boo-boos by the time I'm done. And I walk around with these cuts and stuff for a week or two just from one little thing because I'm such a, a bad guy at that stuff. But you can imagine if, if your nation has been at war. So it's only reasonable that God, gave, that God gave Israel a time to recover, to heal, and to regroup. But these closing words of Joshua, and we read the 23 verse 1, these closing words let us know that this, this resting period went on for quite a while, maybe too long. It says, a long time after the Lord had given Israel rest. You see, the Canaanites were regrouping too. And from Joshua's words, we can tell that, is, that the Canaanites hadn't changed a lick. They were still there. They hadn't repented. They hadn't left. They were still doing all of the things that brought judgment on them in the first place. Not a thing had changed with them. But during this period of rest, 
there was a softening up of Israel. Time didn't stand still. What we'll see in this, uh, in this book as we read through this is that the opening chapters explain to us how all of this started. The, the Canaanization of Israel. The fall of Craig. You know. Now Craig lived for God at one point and now look at him. The fall of Craig. It's the fall of Israel. The Canaanization of a nation that was following God. So the opening chapters of Judges explains to us how this all started. And then as we read through the book, it moves through six cycles, but as these cycles go, each one gets worse. And so the nation is going in a steady decline until at the very end of the book, it's utter saturation. Very difficult to tell the difference between a Canaanite and an Israelite. This is the period of the Judges. It took a long time, but this is where this book is going. So uh, we're going to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, Who will be the first to fight for us against the the Canaanites? The Lord answered, He said, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Now it sounds like it's a person, but this is a tribe. He's talking about tribes. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have handed the land over to him. Judah said to his brother Simeon, Come with me to my territory and let us fight against the Canaanites. I will also go with you to your territory. So Simeon went with him. And when Judah attacked, the Lord handed the Canaanites and the Perizzites over to them. They struck down 10,000 men in Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek, fought against him and struck down the Canaanites and Perizzites. When Adonai Bezek fled, they pursued him, seized him, and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. God has repaid me for what I have done. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. Well, hopefully this chart here will uh, help us to visualize what we're reading about. We can see how the land was divided among the tribes. And as it moves through the different tribes and what they're trying to accomplish, maybe if we have this in our minds, a lot of you may have a Bible that has maps in the back, so you may have one of these already. But uh, In the opening parts of chapter 1, we're going to be dealing with the tribes of Judah and Simeon and Benjamin. So it talks about this king that they have captured, Adonai Bezek. Adonai means Lord. And so we're talking about maybe a title for this king. The Lord of Bezek, the ruler of Bezek, the prince of Bezek. Well, they've captured him and they have mutilated him to humiliate him and to incapacitate him as a future warrior. Now this king, it says here that he knew he was a walking horror story and he knew that he deserved every bit of it. But Israel should have killed him. Instead, they took him to Jerusalem as some kind of demoralizing trophy. You see, 
even though Judah was initially starting out strong, they were already beginning to think just like the Canaanites. Verse 8. The men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and they captured it. They put the city to the sword and they set it on fire. Afterwards, the men of Judah marched down to fight against the Canaanites who were living in the hill country, the Negev, and the Judean foothills. Judah also marched against the Canaanites who were living in Hebron. They struck down Amon, and Talmai. From there they marched against the residents of Debir. Verse 12, Caleb said, Whoever strikes down and captures Kiriath-Sephir, which is the same thing as Hebron, I will give my daughter Aksa to him as a wife. So Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's youngest brother, captured it, and Caleb gave his daughter Aksa to him as his wife. And when she arrived, she persuaded Othniel to ask her father for a field. And as she got off her donkey, Caleb asked her, What do you want? And she answered him, she says, Give me a blessing. Since you have given me land and the Negev, give me springs of water also. So Caleb gave her both the upper and lower springs. The descendants of the Kenite, uh, Moses' father-in-law, had gone up with the men of Judah from the city of Palms to the wilderness of Judah, which was in the Negev of Arad. And they went to live among the people. Judah went with his brother Simeon, struck down the Canaanites who were living in Zephath, and completely destroyed the town. So they named the town Hormah. Judah captured Gaza and its territory, Ashkelon and its territory, Ekron and its territory. The Lord was with Judah and enabled them to take possession of the hill country, but they could not drive out the people who were living in the valley because those people had iron chariots. Judah gave Hebron to Caleb, just as Moses had promised. Then Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak who lived there. At the same time, the Benjaminites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. And the Jebusites have lived among the Benjamites in Jerusalem to this day. So at the time of this writing, Jerusalem was living, was inhabited by both the Jebusites and the Benjamites. Benjaminites. Well, this starts out with Jerusalem. And I'll go back to our map just for a second. If you look at uh, the tip top of the Dead Sea, you'll see the borders just to the left of Judah and Benjamin. And so uh, even though Jerusalem is not on the map there, it is possible that part of the northern part of Jerusalem in this, uh, was in Benjamin's territory and the other south half was in Judah's. We don't know this for sure. We don't, we don't know exactly what happened here. But in this chapter, what we do know is that Judah conquered Jerusalem, at least the southern half or all of it. And then they left there and they moved on to these other territories. It tells us that they went to the highlands and the lowlands and the Negev and they began to fight there. And Simeon went with them. But while all of this was happening... The, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was unable to continue to hold Jerusalem and it fell back into the hands of the Jebusites. 
Obviously, that is not what was supposed to happen. As a matter of fact, through this entire period of time, Jerusalem was in the hands of the Jebusites. Everything we're going to read in the book of Judges all the way to the end, Jerusalem is in their hands. Israel does not take Jerusalem back until David is the king. Two kings later, the second king. And you'll read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 5. But you can hear, see here that after Judah had went to Jerusalem and conquered it, it says they, they, they took the city by sword, they set it on fire. That may have only been the south half, we don't know. Then it tells us that they went to the high country, so this is the mountain area. And in that mountainous area would be places like Hebron and Debir. And then the Negev is the southern part of Judah's territory. It's mostly desert. And this is the wonderful land that was given to Othniel. And then there's the lowlands, and that's that transitional region at the base of the hills that moves to the coastal plain. And so when they get to this coastal plain, they run into people who have iron chariots. They ran into big trouble. Well, in verse 10, it tells us that they went to Hebron after they had left Jerusalem. They marched against the Canaanites there. And they were purifying the land. And after they had successfully done that, they, they continued and they approached Debir, which was also in those highlands, those mountainous area. And Caleb promised his daughter, Axa, to the victor. Whoever can take Debir, you get my daughter. Now Caleb is one of the two men who went to spy out the land and came back and gave Moses a good report. This was a great man of faith. A good guy. And obviously, you know, Chloe would not prefer me to just give her to some guy. <laughs> Things are a little different, you know. But uh, we're going to see here in a minute that that didn't really make his, his daughter mad. Because things were different. Uh, it's common in some cultures today to do this. So, just not here. So we read this and I'm sure women, women are just like shaking their heads like what? You know, but uh, anyway, he promised uh, that whoever, whoever can conquer Debir gets his daughter's hand. And this man's name was Othniel. And so Othniel and Axa were a very godly couple. This is probably the brightest point in this entire chapter. Even though this was an arranged marriage, she wasn't mad about it. It says that after she got there, where are we at? Yeah, in verse 14, after she arrived. So while this war was going on, she wasn't there. But after the land was conquered and everything was cool, here she comes. And so when she gets there, she's not upset about the arranged marriage. She's upset about the inadequacy of the land that's been given to her husband. And she says, okay, so you gave us this land in the desert. Where's the water? And so Caleb gives her the high and low springs. What we're looking at there is covenant faith in action in everyday life. This is the best part of chapter 1. These are godly people. Caleb was the one who came back with that minority report and he said, we can do it. God has told us we can do it. Remember Joshua's one says, 
You guys can do whatever you want, but for me and my, my family, we're going to serve the Lord. These kind of people, godly people, Othniel will go on to be a judge. We haven't even talked about what a judge is yet, but he's going to be one. He's one of the good guys. And we've, we see here uh, that this land was given to, to Caleb by, because Moses promised it to him. And we have to go all the way back to, so when, when they took Hebron, Moses had promised that land to Caleb for his faith for his willingness to go in. And then to keep, to keep with this godly genealogy, this godly line of people, we have Moses' family. We remember when Moses left Egypt and he went to the land of Midian and he ended up getting married and he lived there with those people for 40 years. That family that he married into is here right now. It's the Kenites. It's telling in verse 16, it's telling us that that the descendants of Moses' father-in-law, they were fighting there with Judah. They were there with Israel. And it says they went from the city of Palms to the Negev. And so the city of Palms is the, is the oasis in Jericho. So that would be that area up there around the top of the Dead Sea. So they fought with Judah from there all the way down to the desert. And then it closes here by telling us that they, that they lived there with them. Verse 16. And they went to live among the people. So they had made their decision that they want to be on God's side, that they like God, that they want to follow God, and they want to be around other people that think like that. This is a godly bunch of folks. But we're talking about tribes and we're talking about a lot of people. And so by the time we get to the, the lowlands, we run into these iron chariots and they have a hard time rousting those folks. They can't do it. They're outmatched. And we're not going to spend more time on that other than to say that it's not because God couldn't rout them. It's because He wouldn't. And He didn't because of what He said. You remember in those closing words of Joshua, we read it, chapter 23, verse 12, He said, If you turn away... The Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. And so when God looked at Judah and Simeon, maybe we're seeing them conquering all of these things and all this great stuff, but God sees the king that's got his thumb and his thumbs and toes cut off. And he probably saw some other stuff that he just wasn't he wasn't excited about at all. Less than thrilled. And so it was actually infecting and affecting their ability to drive these people out, these nations. Then we move to, to verse 22, to the end of the chapter. It continues to go downhill. The house of Joseph also attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. They sent, they sent spies to Bethel. And that's before Israel conquered it, it was called Luz. So it's the Canaanite name, Luz. The spies saw a man coming out of the town and they said to him, please show us how to get into the town and we will treat you well. And when he showed them the way into the town, they put the town to the sword, but released the man and his entire family. Then the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a town, and he named it Luz. That is its name to this day. Verse 27. 
At that time, Manasseh failed to take possession of Beth Shean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the residents of Dor and its villages, or the residents of Ebalim and its village, or the residents of Megiddo and its villages. And by the way, those pieces of land are critical. Israel is going to really regret not being able to conquer and take control of these areas. The end of verse 27, but the Canaanites, they refused to leave this land. They refused to know we're not leaving. And they couldn't do anything about it. But then when Israel became stronger, they wiped them out. When Israel became stronger, they made the Canaanites serve as forced labor, but never drove them out completely. At that time, Ephraim failed to drive out the Canaanites who were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites have lived among them in Gezer. Zebulun failed to drive out the residents of Kitron or the residents of Nahal. So the Canaanites lived among them and served as forced labor. Asher failed to drive out the residents of Akko or of Sidon or Alab, Akzib, Hebla, Apnik, and Rehob. And then verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land because they failed to drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the residents of Beth Shemesh or the residents of Bethanath. They lived among the Canaanites who were living in the land. But the residents of Beth Shemesh and the, and the Bethanath served as their forced labor. The Amorites forced the Danites. This is the tribe of Dan. Verse 34. The Amorites forced the, the Jewish tribe, the Danites, into the hill country and did not allow them to go into the valley. The Amorites refused to leave those three places, and when the house of Joseph got the upper hand, the Amorites were made to serve as forced labor. The territory of the Amorites extended from the ascent of Akrabim, that is from the Sela upward. Sorry about the city pronunciations. <laughs> I'm sure someone could do better, but... Uh, I didn't even try. I did not practice. I just thought, I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> well, most interesting to me is verse 22, this little story of this man in Bethel, this man in Luz. He was coming out, and they stopped him. And he could see this massive army was getting ready to invade the city. He said, show us how to get in. Through the cooperation of that man, he decided to help the spies. And they were able to go into the city, they routed the city, but they spared him and his family. Like Rahab. You remember the same thing happened in Jericho with her. You remember the kind of person she was. But she testified, she said, I have heard of this God of Israel. So even though there are some similarities between this man and Rahab, we want to make some observations. We realize that this man is not named like Rahab. We don't know his name. That doesn't mean everything. We know that God healed ten lepers and the other nine kept going to the priest, but one came back to thank Jesus and Jesus says, where are the other nine? We don't know that leper's name, but we know he put his faith in Jesus. So just because this man's not named doesn't mean everything. But it means something. We know that Rahab decided to stay with the Jewish people. This man did not. 
Rahab stayed and she ended up in the Messianic line. And we know that he left. And when he left, he went to the land of the Hittites, which is up north. And he founded a city up there. We want to remember that the Canaanites had options. They could repent, they could leave, or they could fight. Well, what remains in this book, or this chapter, is a series of failures. Manasseh failed to take possession. The Canaanites refused to leave, but when Israel became stronger, the Canaanites were made to serve as forced labor. Instead, they were, they were never driven out completely. Ephraim failed, verse 29. Zebulun failed, but they also forced people into labor. Asher failed and lived among the Canaanites. Naphtali failed, living among the Canaanites, and some were serving as forced labor. And then the bottom drops out with the decline of Dan being forced out of the hill country by the Amorites. Later, Joseph takes back control to a point and then forces them to serve as forced labor. You know, on the outside, this might have looked like a success. They conquered all the city-states, all the fortresses, knocked down all their stuff, took out all of it, and then controlled all of the land. And the people who were living there were either dead, many of them were serving as slaves. On the outside, that might have looked like Israel was the winner, the victor. Good job, Israel. But there was failure and compromise. And that failure was immediate, even though the consequences were not immediately visible. We think about this king. You see, God's eyes see things different than our eyes. They humiliated him as a prisoner instead of putting him to death. You know, walking a king around with a ring in his nose through the streets. The other nations heard what we've done to him. They better fear us. This is, that's just not what God wanted them to do at all. And so they began to make compromises and, and it began to leach into their lives. And, you know, the, the picture is, is that if you date an unbeliever, who's going to win that situation? Paul said, bad company corrupts good morals. By the end of this chapter, we're told that four different times when Israel finally got strong enough, instead of making them leave or killing them, they used them as forced labor. Well, why would you do that? It's because, you know, you can either use the snow shovel or you can use a snow blower. Or you can have somebody else use the shovel or the snow blower. I think I'll have them do it while I go to the beach. It's the little steps in the wrong direction that lead us to places that we don't want to go. You know, when I got hired, there was a test I had to take. 
that told that I had to be able to tell what the current was, the average current of the Ohio River. It's five to eight miles an hour. I'm curious. Why would you want to know that? Because if someone goes in, they're not just going to swim straight across, are they? What's going to happen? Have you ever been on the beach, you know, when you're boogie boarding or whatever, and next thing you know, that's where you were at, and now you're way down here, right? So you think you're walking forward, but you're really doing this. And the place you thought you were going to be isn't where you ended up. If we want the right outcome, we have to make the right steps. So let's pray.